Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. A very exciting pair of guests on this episode. As you may know, I am a big fan of John Gertner's book, The Bell Labs, a history of the AT&T Bell Labs in New Jersey. One of my favorite books really helped me start thinking about information, technology, and the way we communicate now. One of the central figures in that book um, was Claude Shannon, whose theory of information was sort of groundbreaking work for all the things that we think about and use to communicate today. And now we have, uh, I believe, the first biography of Claude Shannon, uh, a new book by Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman, uh, A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. And so I'm very excited to have both of them here on the podcast with me to chat about the book and to, uh, to talk more about Claude Shannon and his theory. So Jimmy, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you guys about the book. It's a great biography and walks all the way through all the work that Shannon did. But before we get into the book itself, can I ask you guys maybe just to introduce yourselves and talk about your background and, and how you guys came together to write this book? So maybe, Jimmy, we'll, we'll start with you. Sure. So my name is Jimmy Sony. Uh, I'm an author. I, I live in New York at the moment. I've known Rob, oh gosh, uh, since our days as college students. So going on, you know, over 10 years now. And we were, funny enough, uh, debate partners at Duke uh, and then became co-authors on an earlier book, uh, biography of a, an ancient Roman senator named Cato the Younger. And our latest book is uh, the biography of, of a 20th century mathematician named Claude Shannon. So we, uh, you know, we moved forward in time uh, and, and moved a little around a little subject. But uh, that's just a little bit about me. Yeah, and speaking for myself, uh, I'm currently a uh, PhD candidate at uh, Columbia University. My day job is as a political theorist, uh, so it's it's been nice to have a break from uh, politics to uh, turn to this work on uh, Claude Shannon. Um, it, it's been really good to dive deep into a subject that uh, is not necessarily related to my main field, yeah. but it's just so much uh, has so much that's fascinating in its own right. So can you guys talk a little bit about how you decided, hey, Claude Shannon should be our next book. You've done something on, on, ancient, on ancient civilization. Where did this idea to do a book on Claude Shannon come from? Yeah, you know, it grew pretty organically. I, like you, was really taken by The Idea Factory. I thought it was just an, a wonderful book. And in The Idea Factory, which is a narrative history of Bell Labs, which many regard as the most innovative 20th century company uh, in the United States and, and possibly in the world, um, Claude Shannon is a central figure, and I, I just assumed, perhaps naively, that someone had already written a biography of, of Claude Shannon, and so I went on Amazon to, to buy it, assuming there would be one, uh, and then I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find it, and so I decided to, to talk to Rob, and we sat down and kind of talked about Claude Shannon and kept doing some digging, and then finally one thing led to another, uh, and we, we you know, sort of embarked on the journey of writing his life. And so Shannon passed away, what, 25 years ago? So how did you start thinking about how are we going to write a biography about this figure who is fundamental to basically how we live and communicate today? Did you have a strategy in mind to write a biography this way? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in. I think he yeah. passed away in 2001. 2001. So, okay. So yeah. really recently. So, I mean, you have relatives. You have uh, many sections in the book where you've spoken to his daughter. How do you think about planning out a biography about a figure where you can talk to some of his, his peers and colleagues? Well, of course, this is a totally different challenge than our work on the Cato book, where right. all the eyewitnesses yeah. have been dead for uh, 2,000 years and can't <laughs> yeah. call us out on it. Yeah. Uh, but in this book, I think we had to do two particular things. One, we had to get a decent handle on the technical aspects on what it was that Claude Shannon did that was so revolutionary in the history of communication. Uh, what's the history of some of the ideas that he came up with and why 
is he so revered within the field for being a, a pioneer of what it takes for us to communicate these days? Uh, the other thing, as you said, we needed to get a sense of who he was as a person, uh, as a colleague, as a father, as a husband, and so on. So I think we sort of pursued these two things in tandem. We, we did a lot of archival research. We did a lot of learning about uh, the history of information, as it were. But also, um, the interviews were just, just invaluable uh, to get a sense of uh, you know what a lovable, uh, decent, if sometimes a standoffish person he was. And finding, my favorite part, I think, was finding ways in which his personality found its way into his work. Uh, the, the idea of, of curiosity and playfulness and uh, questioning um, and, and all these these things that people identified in Claude Shannon's personality shaped the way he approached problems as well. So whenever we could draw those links about the kind of person who would ask the kind of questions that Claude Shannon asked, uh, those were moments in which I, I think we were doing uh, our best uh, and then making the best contribution we could to understanding his life. Mm. I want to get back to his personality and his, and his curiosity, which comes in throughout the book. But can you give us a quick primer on Shannon's main work, The Theory of Information, for those who may not be familiar with it? Uh, yeah, let me just, uh, just, just to get the brief kind of layman's uh, rundown summary. Yeah. Um, elevator pitch version I like to give is that Shannon is essentially the person who invents the bit. Um, the bit is the fundamental measure of information. People have been groping towards a, a kind of objective way of understanding what it means to say there's X amount of information in a thing like a telegraph or uh, another kind of message, or a, a television broadcast, or a letter, or any kind of uh, medium. Shannon's the one who comes along and explains how we can quantify this by thinking about information uh, probabilistically. What, what I mean by that is he starts us thinking about uh, the fact that messages don't just happen at random. Whenever we send a message, because uh, communication is all about following rules to make ourselves understood, um, every subsequent symbol we send, whether it's a word or a letter or an image or whatever it is, is related in, in probabilistic ways to the ones that we've already sent. Um, and, and measuring these uh, probabilities helps us understand how to quantify messages. But the, the more practical upshot of this is that once we understand these probabilities, once we understand that a lot of the um, bits of information we send are redundant, they can kind of be done without, we can do things like compress messages and send them uh, with a lot less uh, bandwidth. Or we can do things like um, protect our messages from noise and distortion by adding in redundancy that acts as a sort of shield against distortion. So the big practical upshot that Shannon uh, uh, proves in his great information theory paper in 1948 is that um, it's essentially possible to send a message from point A to point B, if you code it right, with essentially perfect accuracy. And no one believed this was possible before Shannon came along and proved that that must be the case. Uh, and this insight is essentially the insight behind the internet and all sorts of other uh, high-tech, high-volume communication systems that we depend on every day, because Shannon showed how you can use uh, coding and take advantage of the probabilistic nature of our messages to uh, make sure we send them accurately. Without accurate transmission, you, you don't have the internet, you don't have cloud storage, you don't have uh, cell phones, you don't have texting, you don't have anything that we rely on. Uh, right. All these things are derived from Shannon's insights into bits. So when Shannon's paper comes out in, in 1948, do people immediately recognize the genius and the importance of it and, and how it's going to fundamentally impact uh, technology? I think they recognize the, the impact of the paper, but as a piece of theoretical thought, mm -hmm. uh, nobody could see, you know, in 1948, the kind of world we live in, in, you know, 2017, 2018. Um, 
but they could see that the way that Shannon had thought about information was a radical break from how people had thought about information up to that point. And so within a year, for example, the best evidence that we have for this is within a year, a paper that Shannon somewhat modestly titled A Mathematical Theory of Communication when it is published in book form a year later, is retitled The Mathematical Theory of Communication. Um, but, but more than that, scholars in the field within that period and just after take his paper as the jumping-off point for other papers. So they write papers derived from it. They analyze sections of it. They go through it uh, very closely. And that continues to this day. It's over 90,000 citations of that paper uh, at our last count, and I think even more now. Um, but to answer your question, the technology that would connect to that information theory wasn't quite as clear because he was speaking about something that actually rose beyond technology, that this conversation over Skype, that the web page you loaded and that the phone call you made, you know, are all the same, that they can all be uh, reduced to bits and that they're all they all have the same essential ingredients. On the other hand, you know, theoretically, the paper made a big splash uh, and it, it, um, it was it was important at the time, it continues to be important today. Yeah. I want to talk about Shannon, the man, because uh, what comes through in the book is his curiosity, obviously his genius, but also his curiosity. Um, there's a sentence in, in the book towards the end that I just love. You both write, his style of work was characterized by such lightness and levity, in fact, that we can sometimes forget the depth and difficulty of the problems he took on. Can you give folks a, a sense of what he was like as a person and what you think his keys to success were? Uh, yeah, uh, well, a as a person, he was someone who um, pursued questions about the nature of information for the same reason that he uh, pursued questions about the nature of juggling or the nature of how to pick uh, stocks on a stock market or about um, how to uh, game uh, roulette wheels in Vegas. He did these things just because they were interesting to him uh, because he was the sort of person who loved to tinker, to solve problems, to write codes, to uh, to invent just crazy outlandish gadgets. Uh, he had a um, special uh, motorized line that would take him down from the uh, house to the lakeshore near his house. He uh, carved a, a tree into the shape of a, a pirate flagpole uh, also on his property. Um, he invented a fleet of customized unicycles. He invented a calculator that worked in Roman numerals. He invented a uh, an electronic uh, maze-solving mouse. Uh, he was just the sort of person who did these things for giggles, which didn't mean that he was always a uh, fun, jolly person. I think people who weren't up to his level intellectually would find that uh, he was a sort of withdrawn, sometimes standoffish sort of personality. But um, if there was something that tickled his fancy and, and if he was uh, intellectually engaged, um, people described him just coming alive in a way that was just purely um, just uh, with a pure kind of absence of ego and just totally absorbed in the problems he was working on, totally absorbed in the puzzles that he was trying to solve with his colleagues. Um, so I think it's hard to, to specify exactly what the secret to Claude Shannon's success is, but I think part of it has to do with that idea of um, combining uh, remarkable intellectual gifts with the um, lack of self-importance that kept him asking some silly questions, some odd questions that turned out to have remarkable results. Uh, he actually gave a speech uh, in the early 1950s to his Bell Lab colleagues about technical problem solving and about the kind of personality you need to solve problems. And, and one phrase that I really liked uh, from that speech was, was the idea of cultivating a sort of uh, what he called creative dissatisfaction or constructive dissatisfaction. The idea that uh, a great engineer um, or great scientist knows when there's a problem and knows when something isn't quite right and knows how to poke around uh, outside and inside that problem to figure out why it may or may not be interesting that something isn't quite right there. And the idea to be able to look at things and ask, uh, 
why not this and why not that? Uh, that that idea of cultivating that dissatisfaction, not in a kind of grumpy, cynical way, but in a um, playful, curious way, I mm-hmm. think that's a big part of uh, of what we can learn from Shannon. You know, obviously we can't learn to copy the remarkable uh, intellectual endowments that he just he he was lucky enough right. to have uh, that were part of his gifts. But I think we can learn a little bit more from his disposition of what he did with those gifts. Yeah. He had interests, as you mentioned, you know, that spanned a lot of different areas, a lot of different disciplines. Let me put it this way. I've done over 100 podcast interviews, and basically every person that comes on the show that's working in the fields of data or data visualization comes to it from a different background. I don't think I've had people come to it from the same place. So that wide interest, being able to think about different areas and different disciplines, is that important to success today? I mean, it's clearly something that Shannon had. I guess I'm just wondering whether that broad Renaissance perspective on the world is something that you think is important to success and something that people should cultivate in an era where things are increasingly technical. You know, you can't really take your car to the garage anymore in the corner because it's essentially a computer on wheels. Well, I think at the risk of giving a broad answer to your question, yeah. I'd say, you know, yes. <laughs> I would say <laughs> broadly, like, yes, I, 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 I do think... But but to bring it back to, to Shannon's life, yeah. I think one of the lessons of Shannon's life is that it's okay to dabble, that it's okay to have promiscuous curiosity, that it's okay to pick up a project and finish it to your satisfaction and then set it aside and know that some lingering element of that project is going to find its way into other work you do. I think there's a real premium today on focus, and that's not altogether a bad thing. I think there's a real premium on um, seeing projects through to their you know, ultimate conclusion, whether that's uh, making sure to, to finish a book that you're midway through or whether that's you know, taking company public. And I think those are all good things. I mean, we want people to focus. We want people to finish things. But Shannon's life does offer a few powerful counter arguments, right? So he picks up something like stock picking and he doesn't necessarily want to design a hedge fund. He just becomes interested in it and writes papers about it and gets other people interested in it. He picks up, you know, wanting to build a wearable device and builds one to try to play the tables at Vegas. And he doesn't want to then go and commercialize the product. He tries it out. He and Ed Thorpe build it together. It works. They have some fun and it, it is set aside. Uh, and it now I believe is in a, in a museum. And, and they and again, also they also get worried about the mafia, right? Like I love that part. They do. They do. They they kind of assume that that two somewhat bookish mathematicians are not going to be able to weasel their way out of talking to the mob. Um, <laughs> and and so I I you know I again you can you can argue for or against that style of work. I don't I think what you cannot argue is the significance of Claude Shannon's work uh, and his body of work. And I, I do think that part of the reason it was significant is because he didn't have one input. He wasn't just an engineer. He was an engineer and a mathematician who also studied logic, uh, which is what led to one of his earliest breakthroughs. He was someone who played around with codes when he was a boy and then as an adult you know, participated in the war effort by breaking codes and doing cryptography. And so that cryptography finds its way in information theory. And I think in an era in which we, again, justifiably worry about distraction, Claude Shannon's life is just a little bit of a kind of pump the brakes. It says it's okay to dabble. uh, And there's a difference, I think, between dabbling and being distracted. Mm -hmm. What about Shannon's work with others? I mean, starting his his professional career at the Bell Labs, um, working at MIT. Was there something about the teams and the people that he was surrounded by 
that contributes to that and that sense of dabbling. I mean, I think that's part of the message of, of Gertner's book is this team of brilliant scientists and engineers working for a phone company, but basically being able to work on anything they wanted to work on. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. Uh, and I think an important part of Shannon's story that I hope we tried to tell uh, is the notion of the networks and the communities in which he was embedded that helped make what he did possible. Uh, you know, even starting at MIT, um, a big influence on his uh, later career was Vannevar Bush, who was his uh, first mentor and his uh, graduate supervisor, um, who was a, uh, a major proponent of, of what Jimmy called dabbling, of, uh, of being really ecumenical in one scientific interest. So he gave a talk uh, that we found in a, in a biography of him discussing um, the need for uh, what he called um, grad students in the sciences to get out of what he called their uh, modern monastic cells or their, their little disciplines, their little interests. So he was always pushing Shannon to take his talent in a direction that might not have seemed natural to him. And a great example of this is early in Shannon's life, um, after he completed this famous uh, study of uh, uh, switching and binary coding that, that is one of the bases of the modern computer, uh, which, which should have been enough for most advisors, uh, Bush asked him to go off and uh, do his PhD research on uh, theoretical genetics. Uh, Shannon had never been a biologist, never had any experience in genetics. Uh, he said when he took up the problem, uh, he didn't even know what the words meant, and he had to kind of uh, educate himself from a kind of basic undergraduate level to even get up to the level at which he could write a dissertation. But but he did it, and then even though he didn't publish in the field, I think he really, what he got from those early experiences was the value of uh, getting outside the comfort zone, the value of being an amateur in a lot of fields at the same time, uh, and what might come of it. Uh, later on at Bell Labs, um, he's in an entire environment that encourages that exact mindset. Um, Bell Labs was uh, extremely fortunate in that it benefited from a uh, federal monopoly uh, mm -hmm. on uh, telecommunications, which meant that it had a lot of money to throw around at R&D and hiring people like Shannon who were on the payroll um, to do basic research, research that might not pay off uh, for decades. Uh, but but there are a number of comments that we got uh, both in other works and in our own interviews uh, from people at Bell Labs talking about what, what a great environment this was for doing original research. Uh, one of the um, Shannon's colleagues we spoke to said uh, there, there's an attitude at Bell Labs that it doesn't matter if what you're doing pays off in 10 or 20 or 30 years, uh, we'll still be around then. Right. Um, you know, Shannon himself said that uh, he doesn't remember outside of his uh, time um, when he was uh, sort of conscripted as part of the war effort. Outside of that, he doesn't really ever remember at Bell Labs being told what to work on. Uh, some people um, sank in this environment. Uh, some people couldn't handle that degree of freedom, but other people uh, swam uh, tremendously well. Shannon was one of them. Um, who was able to step back and think not about how do I improve this particular telegraph system or how do I uh, improve this particular long distance phone line system, uh, but to think about, well, what do we mean when we talk about information at all? How do, how do you actually step back and measure it? And, and these things didn't actually pay technical dividends, practical dividends uh, for a number of decades. It was intellectually uh, a bomb, as one of Shannon's colleagues called it. Um, but practically speaking, it was a dud, at least for a couple of decades, and at which point it started to revolutionize the world. But I don't think there are a lot of other companies then and, and certainly now that would have given someone a leeway to do basic research on that scale. Mm -hmm. Is there um, interest that Shannon had that each of you identified with or found the most endearing? You know, I did think that, among other things, the juggling was actually one of the more in endearing parts uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that we know of Shannon the Juggler. The origin story for the, the more serious interest in juggling goes to his 
daughter who uh, read about the MIT Juggling Club in a newspaper and asked her father to take her. And, and as a new father of a daughter myself, I I could just see in the future being dragged to things that I wasn't necessarily, you know, keen on, but then developing a really serious interest in it. Yeah. Uh, now, granted, my daughter is two, uh, <laughs> so that hasn't happened yet. Her the, the keen interest right now is The Watermelon Seed, which is a book about a uh, an alligator who eats a watermelon seed. Uh, <laughs> but I, I could see, foresee in the future uh, being taken in different directions that I wasn't necessarily interested in. The other thing that's endearing with the juggling story is just his interest in it, again, goes beyond what an average person's curiosity would be. Yeah. He invites a juggling club over to his house. Uh, he measures jugglers and what they do. He becomes a juggler himself and tries to sort of get past four balls, which is a, a pretty high high target to hit, and he's not able to hit it and makes him upset. He's also one of the first people to write a serious mathematical paper about juggling, and it shows off just the range of things that he reads because it has citations on everything from you know Socrates... Uh, to scientific to science fiction novels. And so part of what the juggling illustrates is this point that we've been making throughout that it came naturally to him, but it was a real calling card to have a lot of interest and to be reading very widely and then to distill those wide pools of knowledge and learning into papers like this juggling paper. So to me, that's that's one of the stories that stands out. I'll say the other, it's not an interest, but it's a story that's pretty endearing, is the moment when the Shannons are on their back porch and they're hosting kind of a, a barbecue or an event. And uh, Shannon's there and his daughter's there and his daughter Peggy is in charge of the toothpicks and she runs up the stairs this sort of um, porch or patio that they have and while running uh, she trips and the toothpicks they fall uh, into a big pile uh, in front of Shannon the guests and Peggy and you know Peggy's embarrassed and she looks at her father and her father kind of stands there for a second and he looks at the pile of toothpicks. And he says, did you know that you could estimate pi with that? Um, <laughs> and there's a there's a, a, a gather a, a formula or a calculation that allows you to take a, a randomly dumped set of needles of that kind and calculate pi. And what Peggy remembers most is both the kind of absurdity of that moment, but then also the fact that her dad wasn't angry. Uh, yeah. And uh, I found that to, to be endearing. Yeah. Uh, Rob, what about you? One little moment that I respect as an academic um, was uh, when, when Claude Shannon went to MIT uh, later in his career after Bell Labs and became a professor. Um, he was uh, sort of uh, revered as the center of the uh, electrical engineering community there. Um, but, uh, you know, he's never especially keen on supervising lots of students doing sort of the grunt work that a, a less renowned professor was going to have to do. Um, and I think at some point uh, someone asked him why he didn't advise more students. And he said, oh, I, I couldn't possibly. I don't feel entitled to advise anyone. I don't have any advice to give, which was a great way. Uh, people like me are always looking for ways to uh, get out of our, uh, our, our less exciting commitments. And uh, I think I'm going to have to remember that line one day to see if I can uh, get away with deploying it. Um, <laughs> yeah. There was another great quote about, uh, and we put this in the photo section with a great uh, a photo of, of a, a grad student, I think, shot from behind, so we couldn't tell who it was, discussing with Shannon across his desk. There was a quote from one of Shannon's other students who said, uh, you know, in those days you had to have uh, quite an ego to even bother asking Shannon to advise you. So I think uh, th that was probably another thing that protected him from a lot of the, uh, the work, yeah. simply because, uh, not that he was uh, unapproachable, but that uh, you had to think very highly of yourself to even bother approaching him in the first place with an idea. But what's interesting about that is what comes through throughout the book is, is his modesty. And you write as, you know, towards the end of his career, and he's essentially traveling the globe, you know, receiving awards and accolades. He, he really didn't like to do that. 
So that modesty really comes through. So it's interesting in this sort of tension, as it were, between people feeling not up to to asking him for things at the same time. He seemed like a a very modest human being. He very much was. Um, And part of that was, you know, there were a number of sources of that. One was, I think, just a kind of natural inclination to avoid the limelight, to focus on the work itself, to focus on the research. Um, you know, in the 1950s, he he basically has the option to be famous uh, and publicly really well known. The the figure of the scientist is reaching a kind of cultural height, so he's got the chance to get in on that, and he's included on lists of you know the most important American scientists and all that. And then just as soon as that happens, he basically kind of backs out uh, and goes and pursues his own research and work. Um, and so I do think modesty was a part of part of what he did. The other moment that this happens is when when information theory picks up and is t- taking off, um, he's recognizing something, which is that people are treating this theory that he wrote for engineers to solve engineering problems as that era's like solution to everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so people put it on par with the theory of relativity, and he's not as willing to go out and trumpet this theory. Now, that's an incredible thing unto itself because he's a pretty young man still. He's got a lot of self-interest in making this the theory of everything. I mean, he could have been on the lecture circuit and been on TV and all the rest. He could have been like Einstein. But he's willing to be intellectually honest and rigorous enough, and I also think modest enough, to write a quick sort of 300-plus word editorial called The Bandwagon, where he essentially tells the rest of the world, like, hey, cool it. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is this is for engineers doing engineering. Um, it's not, to, please don't pretend that it's bigger than it is. And the thing for us to do right now is to take this work and to continue to advance it. Um, so that was a, a modest moment. I think it was also an intellectually honest moment. Yeah. Well, it, it's a great book. I really enjoyed getting to know both the theory and his work and, of course, the man himself. So, um, Jimmy, Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and thanks for writing a great book. Of course. Thanks so much for having us. It's really good to hear that you enjoyed it. Thank you so much, John. And thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will check out the new book by Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman, A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. You should also check out John Gertner's book on the Bell Labs. I'll put links to both books on the show notes page. So feel free to reach out. Let me know what you think of the book. That's all we have for this week. So thanks for tuning into the Policy Viz podcast, uh, and I'll see you next week.